Hello. On the Leap of Faith this week, as the Lenten season continues and St. Patrick's Day approaches, we'll discover more about fasting and feasting as a religious observance. Food historian Regina Sexton will be joining us and be prepared for some serious food cravings. Nevedita's March is the music you're listening to there, written and played by Brian O'Hanlon. We'll hear about the fascinating Irish woman it's devoted to, Sister Nevedita, who became a national hero in India through her social activism. As Hindus around the world celebrate the night of Shiva, we'll hear more about its importance. But first, at its spring general meeting earlier this week, the Irish Bishops' Conference had plans for a national synodal assembly within the next five years high on its agenda. Joining me now is Bishop Paul Dempsey of Aconry. Dr Dempsey, welcome to the programme. Can you tell us more about the project Walking Together, a synodal pathway? Sure, Michael. Lovely to be with you tonight. Um, basically, I suppose going back to the beginnings of it, it goes back to Pope Francis, Michael. Um, during Pope Francis' pontificate, during his ministry, he's emphasised this whole area of synodality. Now, obviously, that's not a word we use in everyday language, but it goes back to the word synod, which actually kind of means exactly what you were saying there, a walking together or a journeying together. And he has used that sense of synodality or synod as a model for his own ministry and for a model for the ministry of the church, that in a sense, the church were a community who are walking together or journeying together, uh, being inspired, obviously, by the gospel. And I think this whole idea of synodality then has has inspired maybe the the bishops uh, here in Ireland to reflect upon maybe the possibilities that this model of ministry, this synodality uh, offers to the Irish church at this critical time. So that's the basics of it, really, Michael. And if we talk about it as a process, it really is, I suppose, if we were to use a modern parlance, it's a bit like market research. It's it's listening to the audience. Yeah, and that's a critical point, Michael. And, you know, we as the, the bishops are church leaders, and I'm not too long in this job myself. I, I came out of a parish myself and lived in in, in Ubridge there recently and have, have worked in the whole area of parish for the last 23 years. But like we're very conscious of, of the context of the Irish church today and, you know, naming some of the, the huge challenges that we're facing as a church today. We've obviously had the various reports over the last 20 or 30 years, the Ferns report, Cloyne, Dublin. More recently, we've had the mother and baby homes and the really, you know, shocked and saddened everybody. Um, there's the whole context of the decline in vocations. Maybe, obviously, Irish society has become somewhat more secular. There's maybe the disconnect with young people and and also the huge area of of the needing to honour the the contribution and role of of women in the life of the church. And in a sense, that the the model of ministry around synodality might be a way to help us to address some of these challenges that are very much real for us in, in the Irish church today. At the risk of being ageist, is you did mention that you were recently uh, you know, brought to the position of bishop. And so there may be some older colleagues sitting around the table. I'm curious about um, how this will be perceived by them, because you can be fairly sure that uh, topics such as the ordination of women, increased activity for, 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 for the laity in, 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 the, in the Catholic Church in Ireland would be the kind of topics that people will want to talk about. How comfortable will they be with the process? Yeah, Michael, absolutely. I agree with you. Like some of this is scary stuff for some people, you know, because synodality and and, and a synod, like if we're going to be faithful to it, it really is calling on us 
to, to be a new way of being church today. Um, and, and that can be scary because, you know, change for any of us is not easy because we're moving out into perhaps the, the unknown. Um, but like the call of the gospel is, you know, do not be afraid. Um, and in our recent discussions with Cardinal Grech, um, who's leading the synod that will be happening in Rome next year around communion, participation and mission, you know, he, in his discussions with us, he, he was saying that to us, like, don't don't be afraid, you know, to, to step out. And that is my observation, really, I suppose, is that to be fair, there may have been a sense of fear at some stage of not upsetting Rome, not upsetting the Vatican uh, by by having notions at a local level uh, about change. Things like married priests, etc., you know, might be considered unsettling uh, to, to the hierarchy. Sure. And I, I think that's, you know, wonderful about Pope Francis. He has, from the very first day of his pontificate, he has encouraged dialogue and openness. He wants to to, to listen to people. Um, and I think there's a great, uh, I suppose, refreshment around that. Uh, and there is that sense. Now, I, I'm not saying, Michael, and I don't know where this process is going. I don't know whether there will be major change or whatever in those. As I say, sometimes we just come back to the red button issues. I think it's far bigger than the red button issues. Because, like, you know, sometimes I think to myself, if in the morning we had maybe the ordination of women, if in the morning we had priests who were married, we're still left with the challenges of how does the church, how does the gospel speak to society? So there's there's deeper issues than maybe just what we hear regularly in, in the media. Can, can I ask you then just, uh, you know, when you're looking and you're engaged as you are in a process of change, what would be on your own particular hit list, the things you'd love to see the, in the future of the, of the Catholic Church in Ireland and around the world? Well, I'd say one of the huge areas has to be lay involvement, Michael. And I think we, we've talked about it for years. And in fairness, a lot has happened in relation to involving lay people in the life of the church. But I think an awful lot more could be done. The whole role of women how we have to honour and uh, and acknowledge the role of women in the life of the church. And it's so encouraging to see Sister Natalie uh, Backhouse, so she, she's a, a French sister, who, uh, it might sound small now, but for the first time, she will have the right as a woman to vote at the Synod next year in Rome in 2022. As I say, it might sound small, but it is a big indicator that things are changing. Now, I know people will say to me, well, what about the ordination of women? I think there there possibly or probably are difficulties, theological difficulties around the ordination of women. But I think maybe take it one step at a time. I think there's a huge opportunity there where women can take hugely responsible and influential real leadership roles in the life of the church at the highest of levels. And I certainly think we should be focusing on that at this point in time. And we, we see where we go after that. When you bring a group of people together and you're asking them for their specific opinions on something, there may still be a number of, well, for the amount of a better word, referred to as sticking points. I'm thinking about some of the topics uh, that, that, that regularly are put forward as a challenge to the Catholic Church, which is things like the sexuality of, of, of individuals uh, and indeed of priests, uh, of married priests and of the ordination of women. Sure, Michael. And, and as we were talking about earlier on, the, you know, these are the, the red button issues. And as I say, I, I think synodality has to be about more than just the red button issues, but they are very important and it is very important that they are addressed. Um, I'm 24 years a priest uh, this year and, uh, you know, yeah, of course, celibacy is challenging. 
Um, but I have, uh, you know, a lot of people, friends of mine and family who are married and they would also say that married life is very challenging. Um, and I, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, do we kind of sort of think that, you know, just having married priests is kind of just a kind of a magic solution and, and, and it's just going to change things in the priesthood. Perhaps it will. But in my own experience, I'm talking about my own personal experience now, uh, Michael, uh, like celibacy. Yes, of course, it has been challenging at times. And, and there are times where I'd sort of say, yeah, God, wouldn't it be lovely to have someone there for me and to have a family or whatever? Absolutely. B but in another way, maybe celibacy has allowed me, you know, the, to, to be free to serve the people uh, that, that I've been privileged to serve over the years. And it has allowed me to do things maybe in, in the priesthood that I wouldn't be able to do if I was a married man, because my first and foremost um, uh, services to the people of God, not to my, my family. Um, now, look, at I, I, I hear people that who are probably listening in tonight and saying, yeah, but, but what about those who, 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 you know, that doesn't suit them? And, you know, the, the whole area of celibacy, it's not intrinsic to the theological, you know, area of, of, of the priesthood. Uh, it, it's something that, that has come about in the priesthood of, over the centuries. Um, and, you know, we, we need to talk about it. And the idea of people's sexuality would have at one stage never been spoken about. It would have been taboo. But it's the general population are a little bit more comfortable about the, uh, the orientation of an individual at this stage. Does the church have to catch up? And I thank God for that. And, you know, it was something that was repressed, something that was kept secretive. And, you know, when when I stand maybe at, you know, at an altar and I, I'm giving a homily or a sermon or whatever, I'm very conscious as, as the people who are gathered in the church, there are people who are straight, there are people who are gay. There are mothers and fathers there who maybe have sons or daughters who are uh, gay or in same-sex relationships. So, so this is the reality of our society today. Um, and, you know, it, it, the, the Catechism of the Church talks about, like, every single one of us. And this is one of the first things I learned in primary school, Michael, when I was a, a tot. One of the first things I remember was that every single one of us are created in the image and likeness of God. So that says to me, whether you're straight, whether you're gay, whether you're bi, whether you're trans, whatever way you're coming at life from, every single person is made in the image and likeness of God. Every single person is unique and special and should be treated with that love and that respect and that dignity. And as a church, we need to get that message out more and more and more. Uh, and thank God we are more open about it today. Um, and I think there's a, a breath of fresh air maybe blowing through our society today in relation to that issue. Bishop Paul Dempsey, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thanks, Michael, and thanks to your listeners. God bless. Next this evening, if you've been observing Lent this year, how have you been doing? The prospect of St. Patrick's Day next week and Mothering Sunday this weekend are often seen as opportunities to relax the rules of this period of fasting and abstinence. But what is the history and significance of food in this period? To find out more, we're joined from Cork this evening by food historian and lecturer in UCC with the School of History, Regina Sexton. Regina, welcome to The Leap of Faith. As you're in Cork, let's start with something that's become part of Cork's folklore and sums up this topic nicely, the Connie Dodger. Well, good evening, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. Um, and I'm even happier that we're starting on a Cork story with the legendary Connie Dodger. And the Connie Dodger, um, it either is 
a kind of a bun or a cake or a large biscuit. And the story behind it and the folklore uh, attaching to it in the city is that um, when Bishop Cornelius Lucy was appointed bishop um, from the, 19, the early 1950s onwards, uh, he was fairly strict with the Lenten rules of, of uh, I suppose, fasting and observance for the Lenten period. And at the time, um, the customary pattern to follow was that the faithful would have, in the Lenten period, they'd have a full meal and two collations. And there was one bigger collation of eight ounces of food and smaller ones between two or three ounces. And my understanding of the story was that the Connie Dodger, being either a biscuit or uh, a type of cake, uh, was kind of a way around the rules devised by Kenny Cork City bakers, in that instead of having maybe two biscuits with a cup of tea, as per ruling of Bishop Lucy, Cornelius Lucy, uh, they would have two biscuits, but the bakers produced these supersized biscuits. Um, so they had two Connie Dodgers, uh, with their cup of tea and of course what they had was I suppose almost for us almost like a half a packet of biscuits really because the biscuits were so big. So the Connie referred to Cornelius and the, the, the dodgy part was the dodging of the rules as devised by Cork Bakers. <laughs> And of course, this is really, I suppose, what, what's fascinating for us is that there were rules in place and and they, sometimes they actually had a reasonably good reason for them. Can you bring us back a little bit further to the idea of, there's, if you like, the central role of food in, in the observance of Christianity? Sure. And I, I think you're you're really spot on in picking that one out, Michael, because this, I suppose, the Connie Dodger was an example of, um, you know, ways around the rules within a stricture within confines. So they were they were obeying, but they also weren't obeying. So uh, <laughs> it was kind of like a, an Irish solution to an Irish problem in many ways. But that's really interesting because when you look at the whole idea of fasting and feasting, um, we tend to think that these are, we tend to think in kind of binary terms that, that uh, never the twain shall meet. That fasting is something that we're deprived of food or we're restricted in our intake of certain foods. And then the opposite of that would be a feast where everything is permitted and all our desires are satisfied within the structure of a feast. And the fast is something completely opposite. But actually, when you look at the fasting rules, um, um, Built into that are these kind of ways around the rules, I suppose. So you get the Lenten period punctuated by periods of flexibility and relaxation. And indeed, one of those, uh, if you like, break periods is on the way, because I certainly remember as a child growing up, you might have been off the sweets and putting them in a jar. But if St. Patrick's Day came around or your birthday was during the, uh, the Lenten period, you might be let off the hook. Yes, and I suppose that's the Irish expression of the relaxation or the dispensations that were granted. And Patrick's Day was one that, and again, this is interesting because this is, is within living memory of a lot of us and for a certain generation. We are delighted when Patrick's Day came around because it was a kind of, I suppose, what you might call a blowout, you know, mm. uh, that you could suspend the rules. And you could you you could raid the tuck box where you were storing all the sweets that you had given up and you were saving up until Easter. So that was raided on Patrick's Day. And that's within, I suppose, the child's world of Patrick's Day relaxation uh, within a kind of a 
a Christian structure. But then for a kind of a more adult expression of that, what it was, was possibly that, you know, people would give up cigarettes for Lent. You know, these are kind of unheard of things now where they would give up alcohol. We do it in a more kind of, I suppose, modern period of things like dry January and dry November and so on. But the Lenten period for a lot of the faithful was a dry period so that when Partick's Day came around, they, they could imbibe in alcohol particularly. And even if you look at the folk accounts of Partick's Day, um, a lot of the stories that come to the surface are those stories that are associated more with alcohol rather than with uh, food. If you think of things like, um, um, you know, the put the fadrig, the the the, the, the uh, St. Patrick's pot, which of course refers to an alcoholic beverage, or even, um, you know, we remember some things like drowning the shamrock, which for us means that we'll, we'll take an alcoholic drink on Patrick's day. In, in the folk records, what that is, is that, um, and particularly in kind of rural contexts, that uh, the, the, the faithful would take the shamrock from either their lapels on their clothing or they would take it from from the, their, their hats where they might have uh, pinned on a decorative sprig of shamrock. They'd put that into to the glass or, or whatever vessel they had of, of whiskey. So they'd drown the, sham, the, the shamrock in the whiskey and they would throw the whiskey back. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was bringing the festival together with the alcohol and the whole dispensationary climate that surrounded that one particular day. And another one, of course, that has arrived for some, some will know it and others won't, is the Simnel cake. What's that's background? Yeah, that's that's a lovely um, and, and looks like a beautiful cake when you see it uh, made and made well. And the Simnel cake for us is um, a cake we associate with, sometimes we, we associate it with Easter Sunday. Um, but I suppose in terms of the tradition and where, where it evolves, it's, it's kind of strongly tied into Mothering Sunday. Um, which is coming up shortly. So a Simnel cake is, for us, um, a rich fruit Christmas cake or wedding cake. And it's got a layer of marzipan in the middle of it. And then it's got a layer of marzipan on top. Um, And traditionally, you'll see the cakes decorated with 11 balls, 11 marzipan balls on the top. And those 11 balls are said to represent the... um, the apostles, except there is 11 because Judas is missing. He isn't made into a, a ball for, and represented on the cake. Regina, you realise that you've single-handedly set up cravings for anybody listening to the programme this evening. A final question to you then is, what would you specifically want to enjoy as uh, East, the Lenten period comes to the end? What's on your list? Uh, you know what? I, I really do love a hot cross bun. <laughs> and um, you know they're nice fresh but I think they're much nicer when they're maybe a day or two old because what you do then is you just slit them in half and you toast them in the grill and then you um, you just you 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 take the butter out of the fridge maybe a good bit before you start all of this ritual of hot cross bunning and toasting and you have the butter on the side and you just take the butter you put it on your hot cross bun and you stand back and you watch it melting and you think about what that taste of fat, spice, uh, sugar and um, fruit is going to be like with a really uh, nice cup of, of um, hot tea. <laughs> I think you've sold it to us all. Regina Sexton, thank you for joining us on The League of Faith tonight. Not at all. Thank you, Michael. She hailed from early childhood days, and in her urge 
That's a poem called Celtic Lioness, written by Swami Purnananda, Hindu spiritual director and founder of the Era Vedanta Society, set to music by Brian O'Hanlon to commemorate a remarkable Irish woman who became known in India and around the world as Sister Nevadita. More on her story in a moment. But first of all, Hindus all around the world are this week celebrating Maha Shivaratri, the night of Shiva. And joining me now is Swami Purnananda, who's also contributing to a series of special messages on RTE for St. Patrick's Day. Swami, welcome back to The Leap of Faith. Thank There's you, so Michael. so much to talk about this evening, but I'd like to start, if I could, by getting to explain a little bit more about the significance of Thursday and Friday of this week and the great night of Shiva. Uh, yes, well, uh, the the festival is called Maha Shivaratri. You know, every month there is a Shivaratri. There's a night that is dedicated to Shiva. But once a year, Mahashivaratri, around about this time, normally February, March, uh, the 13th night of the dark fortnight is when we have a big, big Mahashivaratri festival. Uh, Shiva himself is something like uh, the the hippie of the Hindu pantheon. <laughs> and uh, so he has, uh, he's a yogi, he has long hair and so on. But Shiva was originally mentioned as an adjective meaning on an auspicious entity and so this auspicious entity really is instrumental in removing our ignorance hinduism says uh, doesn't uh, labor on sin or those kinds of things it says the perfection of who we are is right here right now but it requires a realization that means a removal of ignorance. Something like the when the cloud moves on, we can see the sun. And of course, there's an aspect too of fasting, which I believe you're observing yourself. Yes, yes. Unlike all the other festivals where the opposite is true. You know, Michael, there are two spiritual things we can do, feasting and fasting. Uh-huh. <laughs> and most of the festivals are, fa- are feasting. But on this occasion, it's fasting. And it, it's very much in tune with the uh, Christian concept of Lent. And Swami, as you mentioned, at the end of the fast, there's the feast. What particularly can people look forward to as they break their fast? There is a special sweet item that we make. Uh, It is comprised of four things, uh, milk, uh, curd or yogurt, honey and ghee. And these are mixed in and that is offered. Uh, You know, the whole idea of of a puja, as it's called, is a way of going into a state of, of meditation for the devotee. So it's offering food, among other things, and it's that food that is eaten afterwards also. Now, I've often heard it said that people from this part of the world find maybe meditation a little bit more challenging than others. And, and that leads me on to something that we've been talking about before and that we said we would share with the audience on the programme. And that is the story of an Irish woman, Margaret Elizabeth Noble. Who was she and what's her significance? Well, now you have touched on my most favourite subject, um, because, as you say, there was um, an Irish woman born in Dunagannon, um, 28th of October in 1867. And she was the daughter of a grocer. And they were brought up really in a Protestant uh, environment. And when I say Protestant environment, I'm not talking of Presbyterian. This is in the Methodist and Congregationist kind of tradition 
which uh, at that time was very keen on anti-slavery and uh, women's voting rights and all of those kinds of things. But she grew up, uh, uh, was educated in England, and she trained as a teacher. So she left at the age of 17 and for a number of years taught at various schools. But by the age of 25, she had her own girls' school in Wimbledon, so she was innovative, and it left her in good stead for her future work. And uh, it so happened that Swami Vivekananda, who was very famous in America and who had uh, been the star of the Parliament of Religions in Chicago in, in 1893 in September there, and he happened to be visiting. He was invited to visit London. And so... Margaret Noble went along and was immediately struck by his personality. His uh, very key mission was to uplift the poor, the downtrodden in India. And he saw women's education as the most crucial factor in all of this. Said, What's really interesting yeah. as you describe it there is that, you know, it, this this could have been simply at, uh, of its time a celebrity visiting London uh, and this woman who was, uh, you know, adventurous and independent deciding she was, as I said, swayed by him. But it seems to be actually far more intense, the activity they got up to, in that uh, she was able to bring about specific changes in India. Can you bring us to her her impact directly on the country? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he brought her across... Uh, with uh, certain qualities that he said she had, and sincerity, for example, and immense love, well-educated. But above all, her Celtic blood is the most remarkable statement he made. And people have been wondering what was it in her Celtic blood. But you can see that her forwardness, her feistiness, her commitment, her dedication was really what was instrumental in turning India around she developed a love of India to the extent that Indians themselves said nobody loved India more than she did. On the 25th of March, Swami Vivekananda initiated her into monastic life. And so that's another unique feature, that she was the only Western person of that time to have been uh, given this uh, monastic order status. And, of course, her, her name was Sister Nivedita. That was given to her on 25th March. The main, name means the dedicated one. And she was a nun, essentially, for the rest of her life. And the idea was that she should start a school for girls. And she realizes that this is going to be a special education adapted for the Indian, Indian children and Indian women introducing not only life skills in the education, but the basic elements of education as well, and trying to distance herself from the British style of education and getting children in touch with their national heritage and their culture. Swami, you've talked about the extent to which she began to, to influence people and that she seems to be quite a clever woman in the way that she did that. How is she perceived now in Indian history? Well, she's very much a part of Indian history um, because uh, of you know the support she gave 
which acted as the foundation for the Indian freedom movement. Uh, so she, today she's regarded as a nationalist in India. And in Calcutta, of course, the, her legacy is schools, Nivedita schools. A bridge is named after her in Calcutta. A road is named after her in Calcutta, where she operated from in Bospora Lane, uh, has been acquired. It's now a national heritage site and a museum. Swami Purnananda, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Michael. And that's our Leap of Faith for this week. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.